0: This morning we come to the topic of deacons, and throughout the life of the church, oftentimes tradition and history get imported into the biblical witness. The greatest example of this would be the sale of indulgences during the Reformation, Of course, we know that's not biblical, but over time, as the medieval church began to adopt this practice, it became a tradition and a history of the church and became more important than what the Bible actually said about how sins are forgiven. When we approach a topic like the office of deacon, even, in many of our churches over the years, especially in Southern Baptist life, Deacons began to function more like a board of directors, more like an elder board, than what we actually see in God's word. Now, in practicality, this meant that for many deacon bodies within some churches, they began to function in a way that the pastors and elders should be functioning. And sometimes this happened because there was a void of leadership. And so the deacons stepped up and provided that leadership in moments of transition, but in many instances, instead of returning back to the model that we see, deacons as being chief servants, many deacon bodies in churches all across the West maintained this level of power and authority that we don't actually see in the biblical witness. If I were to poll the audience, all of you probably have stories of deacons, whether it be in a church that you grew up at or a friend's church and stories that you heard about of deacons that wielded authority and power in a way that the Bible clearly says they don't have the power to do. Now, why is this a problem? It's a problem because it's a departure from what the Bible teaches a deacon is supposed to be. And I think before we even get into the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, we should really go back to Acts chapter 6 and review the historical context, which most people believe to be the prototype of what a deacon would go on to be. Paul has, of course, given us instructions... In chapter 2 and 3, about how men and women are supposed to behave. In the beginning of chapter 3, last week, we looked at the qualifications for an elder. And so today we come to the qualifications of deacons. And all of these instructions that he gives for men, for women, for elders and pastors, and now for deacons. All of these instructions are for the good of the church and the building up of the body of Christ. So we're going to look at both Acts 6 today and 1 Timothy. And as we do that, we're going to answer three questions this morning. Number one, who are they? Referring to deacons. Number two, why do we need them? And then number three, how should they behave? So number one, who are they? Why do we need them? And then how should they behave? Number one, deacons, who are they? Look very quickly with me at Acts chapter 6. Here's what Luke tells us in this passage, beginning in verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said... And of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So for the sake of time, let me summarize what's happening here in Acts 6. You have a problem that arose. The Hellenistic widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. These Hellenistic widows would have been the ones that spoke Greek. The Hebrew widows were the ones who spoke Aramaic. And there was a complaint brought before the disciples. How are you going to address this, basically what had the potential to become a church split? And so what the disciples did is they gathered, it tells us, the full number of disciples because this was a legitimate complaint and they formalized a plan. And that plan is in verse 3 when we're told that they picked out seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom they would appoint to this duty of serving tables. Now, what's interesting about Acts 6 is the term for deacon... As an office is not mentioned. So, even though in 1 Timothy 3 we see the office of deacon, what we see in Acts 6 is often known as the forerunner to what would become the office of deacon. Acts 6 is a prototype, if you will, of the future office of deacons. Now, two resources that I think are very helpful on this subject of deacons. Number one is Matt Smether's book, which we brought him in a few years ago to teach our own deacons through his book. It's called Deacons, How They Serve and Strengthen the Church. And the second resource is kind of embarrassing to say, but I would recommend you go look at my sermon that I preached on Acts 6 back in 2021 in July where we unpack completely that Acts 6 passage. But what we see from this Acts 6 text, number one is that deacons are problem solvers. They solve problems. There was an issue in the church that needed to be addressed. It says in verse 1, a complaint arose by the Hellenists. Now, all complaints are not legitimate, okay? But this is certainly a legitimate complaint because it had the potential to become a very big division within the life of the early church. And the 12 disciples realized that they could not take on this task alone. They needed help. Because if they were to take on this task, what would happen? It would distract them from the teaching of God's word and praying for the congregation. So it's not just that deacons are problem solvers, but I would add to that deacons are problem solvers with the purpose of fostering unity within the body of Christ. So it is possible to solve a problem in the wrong way. The deacons... Or the prototypes of deacons here in Acts 6, they solve this problem appropriately. So, number one, they're problem solvers with the purpose of fostering unity within the body of Christ. But number two, deacons also in Acts 6, they meet tangible needs. It was important that these Hellenistic widows were not neglected in the daily distribution of food, they needed to eat. The disciples realized this is legitimate. We need to address this. We don't want our sisters in Christ dying because they weren't getting food. So the deacons stepped up, or the prototype of deacons, and they took care of that need. So they meet tangible needs. But number three in this text, they serve and support the ministry of the elders, the pastors. In Acts 6, it's the disciples. In Acts 6, notice... It is not the seven men who approach the disciples to say that they should be used within the body. It is the disciples who come to the conclusion along with the church at large that we need to identify a body of people who can meet these tangible needs and serve the widows so that the church can continue to grow. So a deacon is most effective when he is serving and supporting within the church the needs that the pastors and the elders have identified as legitimate needs within the congregation. So, for example, if someone, of a brother or sister in Christ, after the service today, comes to me and says, Pastor, I notice we have weeds out in the front of our church. In many churches, deacons take on the role of buildings and grounds. They handle those issues. In our church, we are very fortunate to where our deacons do not have to do that. So if that were brought to me, I would say, thank you for letting me know. We will contact the company that we pay to take care of our grounds and make sure it's taken care of. So in that regard, that would not be a job that our deacons would do. However, if one of you came to me and said, one of our widows in the church or one of our homebound people in the church is in desperate need of a weekly meal. I would contact our deacons and say... We have this particular person who is in need of a weekly meal. Would you please make sure that she gets added or he gets added to our homebound distribution that we send out every Wednesday night? Not only would you make sure that she gets put on the list, but would you take the responsibility of recruiting a volunteer to make sure that she is getting or he is getting visited on a weekly basis? That would be a very appropriate way that our deacons could be used in this body. Why? Because we as pastors have decided that our homebound need to be visited weekly. That they are an important part of the body. So it fits perfectly within the vision that we as pastors see for our church. So that would be an example of them supporting and coming alongside of the pastors to make sure that everything gets taken care of. One of my favorite pastors who pastors up in uh, Washington, D.C., Mark Dever, This is a quote that I took from him, and it fits perfectly with what deacons should do. It says, if the elders say, let's drive to Pittsburgh, it's not up to the deacons to come back and say, no, let's drive to Philadelphia instead, but they can legitimately come back and say, our engine won't get us to Pittsburgh. Perhaps we should reconsider. Do you see the difference it's the deacons who are coming back to the pastors and saying, hey, currently right now, we don't have the bandwidth to take this on. We, we love the vision that you have for this, and we want to support you any way that we can. But ultimately, we're just telling you at this moment, we don't have the manpower to take it on. But it's not the deacons who come in and tell the pastors, this is what you should be doing. That is a qualification or a responsibility that God has given to the pastors and elders. So to summarize, who are deacons? They are problem solvers with the purpose of building up and fostering unity within the body. They meet tangible needs. And number three, they serve and support the ministry of the pastors and the elders. Now number two, deacons. Why do we need them? We also learn from Acts 6, and it's actually found in verse 2. Here's the answer it says, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And then in verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So why are deacons needed? Because the preaching of God's word and the prayers of the pastors on behalf of the congregation and on behalf of lost souls should not be neglected, in this instance in Acts 6, in order to serve tables. Now, this does not mean that pastors never serve. This does not mean that there are certain tasks that are somehow not important enough For pastors to do. This is not what Acts 6 is teaching. But when it gets to the point when God's word and the preparation and the study and the prayers that are required in order to preach sermons and to teach Bible studies and disciple people in the congregation. If all of that stuff is distracted by needs within the congregation and it prevents the pastors from doing the very thing that God has called them to do. That is when deacons can step in and provide wonderful help. So the supremacy of preaching God's word must be the top priority of pastor's. Being in God's word, planning worship services, discipling brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not that vision casting and marketing and management and leadership are not important qualities for pastors to have. But ultimately, those do not grow a church spiritually. The only thing that can grow a church spiritually is the word of God. And therefore, a pastor's time cannot be compromised when it comes to studying God's Word and being in God's Word and praying through God's Word, both for himself and for those within the congregation. Mark Dever also says this. He says, If you establish the priority of the Word, then you have in place the single most important aspect of the church's life. And growing health is virtually assured because God has decided to act by His Spirit through His Word. It's interesting in Acts chapter 6 that when the disciples are made aware of this need, they don't gather together and say, we need more pastors, do they? No, they identify servants within the body who they knew were full of wisdom and full of the Spirit to address these tangible needs. If the church simply hired a pastor to address every need within the church, not only would that be a poor use of financial stewardship because it would hurt our missions giving and it would hurt our ability to do ministry, but it would also prevent people like you from being able to use the giftedness that God has given you to serve within your congregation. In Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12, Paul says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to what? Equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So if you feel like the area of ministry that you are serving in is time-consuming, I would say, welcome to ministry. If you feel like the area that you're serving in prevents you sometimes from doing things that you want to do, I would say, welcome to being a part of the body of Christ. This is what it means to serve your church. We don't always just serve when it's convenient and when it's easy and when nothing else is going on in our life. Mary Catherine has been standing up on stage eight months pregnant with twins, singing every week. My wife drove into the ninth ward of New Orleans all the way into her ninth month of pregnancy to pick up kids for church every Wednesday night. Emily and Hannah also faithfully served church while uh, taking care of small children and being pregnant. Okay? It's Pastor Appreciation Month, so I figured I'd give a shout out to our wives. (laughs) Everyone in the church is called to serve. And if you only think you can serve when life is convenient and everything's going well for you, that's not really serving. Because it's easy to do it when nothing is going on in your life. There are times when we have to push through the discomfort and push through the inconvenience in order to take care of things that we know needs to happen within the church. We have community group leaders who are gone Friday and Saturday and they come back in town. Saturday night or early Sunday morning to ensure that they can teach their class and be a part of their class. We have people that drive in late from Tuscaloosa and wake up early on Sunday mornings from Auburn to come back and gather with this body because they have made a commitment to serve the body of Christ. And since Christ died for his church, I personally don't think it's too much to ask for us to serve the church for which he died. And it's the job of deacons to be the chief servants, to be the lead servants in the church. Matt Smethurst, in his book on deacons, the best way that you can distinguish between deacons and elders is this. He says deacons lead the church by serving, and elders serve the church by leading. That's the main distinguishing mark between a deacon and an elder. Deacons lead the way in the church by serving, while elders serve the church by leading the church, by giving direction. Deacons are needed because the pastors cannot give up the priority of praying and preaching and being in God's Word. But you know why else deacons are needed? Look at verse 7 of Acts 6. The Word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So when the deacons and the pastors are both functioning in the proper way as laid out in Scripture, the church grows. Now in Acts 6, it grew numerically. And it might even grow today numerically. But more importantly, it grows spiritually. And it becomes more healthy Because when deacons are functioning as the way the Bible commands them to, and as elders and pastors are functioning as the way the Bible commands them to, it is the way that God designed his church to be. And when something is functioning within its design, it grows. This is what we see in Acts 6. But number three, deacons, how should they behave? This brings us to 1 Timothy 3. Now, if you remember last week, When we looked at the qualifications for pastors and elders, the banner over which every other qualification was under was the phrase above reproach. But for deacons, here in verse 8, it's the word dignified. Dignified is the banner under which all the other qualifications for deacons come. Dignified means that they are honorable, worthy of respect... Spiritually speaking, this means that they would be humble, they would be repentant, they would build up the church, they would pray, they would disciple others, they would proclaim the gospel to lost people that they know. Basically, they would be faithful church members. That's what a deacon ultimately would be. And Paul, in this passage, gives three negative behaviors that deacons should not be, followed by three behaviors that would describe deacons. He says that they should not be double-tongued, not addicted to wine, and not greedy for dishonest gain. Double-tongued, number one. This is when we say one thing to an individual or a group of people and then say something else to another group, or to another individual. And you know why we do this? When we fear man more than we fear God. When we are so concerned, as a pastor who often struggles with this, when we are so concerned with people-pleasing, we will more than happy say something to one person in order to accommodate them and settle them down, and then say something completely different, which will also accommodate and settle that person down. And the reason Paul lists out these qualifications for deacons is because oftentimes deacons will have conversations with people within the church in a way that the pastors and elders might not. Perhaps those individuals are not comfortable coming to the pastors and elders, but they will approach a deacon. And it is very tempting in that moment as the deacon to affirm and agree with everything that that person is bringing to you. But then at the same time, go back to the pastor or elder and say, everything's fine. It's really not that big of a deal. So we can easily talk out of both sides of our mouths. The temptation is to make both parties happy. That's what happens oftentimes when you're double-tongued. And one of the best ways to counteract this, whether you're a pastor, an elder, or a deacon, is when somebody comes to you with a potential complaint is to encourage that brother or sister to go to the individual that they have a problem with. Do not feel like you have to be the one responsible to fix that problem. And that is not passing off the buck. It is the godly thing to do. Because otherwise you're engaging in gossip. So when a brother or sister has a complaint, whether it be with a deacon or with one of the pastors, the best thing that deacon can do is perhaps pray with that individual and say, I highly encourage you to go share your concerns with the person that you are frustrated with. A deacon, Paul says, does not need to be double-tongued. It is not helpful, and it does not build up the church. Number two, he also says they should not be addicted to much wine. This is not only a reference to alcohol, but would be a reference to any sort of substance that prevented a deacon from basically having self-control. This is similar to the qualification given to elders in the beginning of chapter 3 when he says they must be sober-minded. A deacon needs to have self-control. And when a deacon is addicted to wine, obviously he loses his ability To be sober-minded. And then number three. Not a lover of money. It's very highly likely actually. That in the church in Ephesus. The deacons were responsible for managing the financial affairs of the church. And Paul knew that this would be a potential temptation for men within the body who loved money who had a temptation for money. And so he is telling Timothy here, they must not be lovers of money. They must not be consumed with material possessions because if they are involved in the gathering of the church's finances, they might be prone to steal or might be prone to misjudge the finances of the church. Our deacons as well collect the offering and take it up every week. And so we have to be very careful that we don't select men who... Love money so much to the point that they might be tempted by gathering the collection every Sunday. Material possessions, money, stuff, cannot consume a deacon to the point of being the top priority in their heart. So he gives three negative behaviors that should not describe deacons. Deacons, and church members for that matter, do not be double-tongued. Do not be addicted to wine or anything that would cause you to lose sober-mindedness and be able to make and exercise sound judgment. And then number three, do not be a lover of money. But then he gives three expectations of deacons. He says, first, hold the mystery of the faith... ...with a clear conscience. This is a reference to the contents of the gospel. Deacons are not simply servants. Don't miss this. It's not just that if we find anyone who can serve... ...they should become a deacon. Deacons need to have spiritual maturity. They should know the gospel. They should study their Bible. They should strive to grow in spiritual maturity... While deacons, we know, are not qualified to be teachers of God's word, that only falls to elders, they should still know God's word. They should study it. They should memorize it. They should meditate on it. They should be able to apply it in their own lives and to the lives of others in the congregation. So Paul is telling Timothy here, they must hold the mystery of the faith. That is, they must understand the gospel with a clear conscience. Number two, Paul says, they should also be tested. Now, Paul doesn't give us specifics on how that looks. So each individual church has to decide what Paul means here when it comes to being tested. So I can only communicate to you what we do as a church. We have a committee who gathers once a year, and we begin thinking through potential candidates to be deacons in our church. And once we have that list, we then... Test them as best as we know how by asking them to fill out a questionnaire. In which case, we ask them to explain their conversion to faith in Christ. We ask them to explain the gospel. We ask them to look over the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, 8-13. through And to really reflect and ask themselves, do you fit these qualities? Or are you struggling in any of these areas? We also check to see if they are faithful in coming to church, and faithful in giving to God's church. And after all of those checks are done, and those questionnaires are received, our pastors look through those questionnaires, and then we nominate, along with the committee, men to serve as potential deacons in our church. And every year we have candidates who many people have recommended, but for one reason or another do not qualify to serve as deacons. Therefore, we make the decision that at that particular moment, this man is not fit to serve in that office. You might be saying, man, that's, that's really harsh. But if you think about it, every civic organization that you are a part of has standards and requirements for what it takes for you to continue to be a part of that. And yet the church, for some reason, is oftentimes asked to water down and simplify what it is it asks of its leaders. And I'm just going to tell you, we're not going to water down the qualifications for what it means to be a pastor or an elder. We're not going to appoint people as deacons. We're not going to allow men to serve as deacons who do not fit the qualifications, who do not faithfully serve here, who do not faithfully attend, who do not faithfully give, no matter how popular, no matter how well-liked they might be. Because we ultimately are not accountable to you, we are accountable to God. And we want to stay faithful to the qualifications that he has given us here. And then number three he says, they should be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. This ties into the same qualification that he gave to elders. If deacons cannot manage their families well, if they, not, if they cannot lead their wives and their children appropriately, if they are unfaithful to their spouse or unfaithful in some way to their children, they should not serve as deacons, Paul says. Now look at verse 11. It's worth discussing. There has been debate throughout the history of the church regarding the interpretation of verse 11. And there are two prominent interpretations that I want you to consider and pray through and study the text for yourself to see which one is more faithful to the text. Here's what it says in the ESV. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful, In all things. Now, the first interpretation is to take this text just as we see it in the ESV, which paired with verse 12 would mean that the office of deacon is exclusive to men only. Many gospel believing, Bible believing churches would agree with this interpretation. Many in our own congregation would even agree with this interpretation and would keep moving right on into the text. But just be aware, there is another interpretation in many conservative and faithful views, and it translates the text differently. In the ESV, you'll notice the word wives. The Greek word there is actually often translated "women." In fact, throughout 1 Timothy, Paul translates that same word as women, not wives. In fact, it's the more common translation that you actually find. And in the ESV, which is the text from which I read, there, T-H-E-I-R, that is supplied in the English text. In other words, when you read the Greek text, there is no possessive pronoun there in the text. So in the NIV, for example, if you have that translation, the translation of verse 11 is simply the women instead of wives. So this interpretation actually opens the door for the possibility that the Bible does not restrict the office of deacon to men only. So consider these points. Number one, wives is better translated many times women. Number two, there is not in the Greek text. And number three, and perhaps most significantly, why would there be qualifications for deacons' wives in the second half of chapter 3 and no qualifications for pastors' and elders' wives in the beginning of chapter 3? Does it not matter that a pastor's wife be dignified and slow, and uh, sober-minded and not a slanderer? Now, oftentimes the case can be made, especially from Acts 6, that since Luke records for us that seven men were chosen in that text, then it should only be men. But as we have already said in Acts 6, it does not refer to these men specifically as deacons yet, because the office of deacon was not yet established within the church. So, unless you say it's unbaptist, For a church to have women deacons. Let me take you to our Baptist faith and message. Which says this. It's the confession of faith. Which we as Southern Baptists adhere to. It says this. While both men and women are gifted for service in the church. The office of pastor slash elder slash overseer. Is limited to men as qualified by scripture. So. So. Even the Baptist faith message of our Southern Baptist Convention does not stipulate overtly that men can serve as deacon, but actually leaves the interpretation open to each church and individual as they understand the text for themselves, which is exactly what I am attempting to do this morning. I want you to take 1 Timothy 3, 8-13 through and do your homework and come to the conclusion that satisfies your conscience based on your understanding of God's word. So, what then is the point of being a deacon? I oftentimes, in conversation with men in our church over potentially serving as deacons, they will often say things to me like, Well, I'm already serving in some capacity. Why do I need to formally be a deacon? I'm already doing this or that. And in some ways, I appreciate their sentiment. It shows humility. It shows someone who's not really craving to have a title. But on the flip side, I'm reminded of what Paul says here in verse 13. You want the answer on what's the point of being a deacon? Look at verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is why you should want to be a deacon because of what Paul says here in verse 13. They gain a good standing both for themselves and they have great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Listen to what one commentator said. It is not so much that by being a good deacon a person will receive rewards. It is in the actual doing of the service that one daily acquires a better standing before the people And more confidence in one's personal faith. These rewards are not given to a believer at a certain time, but rather are achieved during the process of service. When you serve as a deacon, the reward is not being a deacon. The reward is the service that you get to do for Christ's church. The reward is the service. The reward is the building up of the body of Christ. The reward is meeting the tangible needs of the congregation. The reward is fostering unity within the body when division is possible. The reward is getting to come alongside pastors and elders, even if you find them annoying, to accomplish the vision that God has set for them to accomplish within the church. So serving as a deacon, brothers and sisters in Christ, it is a privilege. It shouldn't be a burden or an obligation to serve your church in this way. I love our deacons. They aren't perfect, but neither am I. So while I might be frustrated with them at times, I am surely confident that they are equally, if not more, frustrated with me. And yet we strive together to build up the body of Christ. The pastors have a job to do, praying, teaching God's word. And the deacons come alongside of us to make sure that we can do that. It's our deacons who make sure every Sunday that we have people at the doors to greet you when you come in. It's our deacons who stand in the parking lot, rain or shine. 100 degrees or 30 degrees to make sure that when you drive in every Sunday morning you have a smiling face. It's our deacons who lead the way in our security team keeping us all safe. It's our deacons who lead the way in taking up of the offering and the Lord's Supper and assisting with baptism. It's our deacons who are going to come alongside a sister in Christ in our church who needs a wheelchair ramp even this week and they are coming alongside of her to meet this tangible need. It's our deacons who alert me when there is potential for division within the body so that we can squash it as quickly as we can, so that Christ's church can continue to be built up. It's our deacons who lead the way in making sure our homebound people are loved and cared for. It's our deacons who are constantly looking out for the potential of new members to get involved in serving in our church. And it's our deacons who lead the way in serving this body because of the example of Christ himself who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve humanity through the giving of his life on the cross, living the perfect life that we're incapable of living, and died the death that we deserve. So for any that repent of their sins and believe in Christ Jesus and his sacrificial death can be reconciled to a holy God. Deacons portray the servant leadership that Christ himself exhibited for his church. So when deacons that fit the qualifications and do the things that the Bible has designed for them to do, and when pastors and elders fit the qualifications and do the things that the Bible has designed for them to do, when both offices are moving in the direction Biblically mandated for them, the church of Jesus Christ is built up and it grows and it's more healthy as a result. Let's pray. God, we thank you for deacons. God, we thank you that you have given us an example, a tangible example in Acts 6 of a potential split that could have happened in the congregation. And these seven men stepped up and met the need and continued to foster unity within the body. We thank you for the qualifications that you have given to deacons. May we never water them down. May we never be so desperate to have men serve as deacons that we turn a blind eye to what your word clearly calls them to do. God, we thank you for those in our church who serve faithfully, week in and week out even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, even when it's inconvenient. The church of Jesus Christ is better because of the office of deacon. Most importantly, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who served us by giving us his life for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.